Hello, and welcome to Scare You to Sleep. I'm your host, Shelby Scott. Before we get started with tonight's stories, I wanted to make an announcement that I am officially taking submissions for this year's Halloween Kids episode. I made an informal announcement at the end of last week, but I know some of you have fallen asleep by then, so I wanted to give you some more um, cohesive details. I know I was a little shaky on them. (laughs) So the deadline will be Sunday, September 13th. Please only send submissions via email at scareyoutosleep at gmail.com or if your little ones prefer writing out their tales on paper, you can also send it via snail mail to Shelby Scott, P.O. Box 8224, Mission Hills, California 91346. I will put that address in the show notes and it's also available on scareyoutosleep.com if you go to the contact tab. So I've added some age categories. The kids episode will be for kids 12 and under and anything from teens 13 to 17 will get their own teen episode. That way parents and teachers won't have to act fast and skip some of the scarier stuff from the older kids. Also, please note your child's age when you send it in and whether or not you'd like me to say their full name or just their first name. I know a lot of kids have a couple of weeks until school starts again, so hopefully they can get in the Halloween spirit a little early and come up with some fun stories for me to tell. So tell your kids, students, nieces, nephews, younger siblings, the neighbor kid you babysit to rev up their imaginations. I cannot wait to see what I get this time around. Oh my God, I'm so excited. Also, don't worry. The kids episode won't be the only thing I do for Halloween, but I just wanted, I know I need to get that one done early because kids take time and they're going to be starting school soon and be getting busy and you know, all the hectic stuff that comes with life. So I wanted to give you a bigger time frame to get those into me. Okay. Now on to the show. The first story is by Reddit user Eggiest Nerd, and it is called The Laundromat. Wow, I'm surprised I even have cell surface in here. So let's make it quick before my battery dies. God, I don't even know what day it is anymore. All I know is that every Saturday, I take my laundry to the laundromat. Now, I usually go to the one on 6th Street. That one is currently closed for construction, meaning I had to go a few blocks over and use the one on 10th Street. Immediately upon stepping into the laundromat on 10th Street, I was greeted with a feeling of dread. Something about the place just seemed off. Also, no one else was in there, which only added to the eerie atmosphere. I quickly found out why. I waited for about an hour while the machines washed and dried my clothes, and in my boredom I decided to wander around. It was a small, very worn place. The lights flickered, the insides of their panels caked with dead moths and flies. The wallpaper was peeling, revealing the drywall beneath. And all of the coin-operated machines looked to be from the 80s. I tried to read some of the flyers on the bulletin board near the door, but for some reason, I couldn't. It was almost as if I... I had forgotten how to read. Only I didn't, because 30 seconds later, I read and answered a text from my girlfriend. Finally, the timer on the dryer beeped, and I dumped my load of laundry into a basket 
and started toward the door to carry it to my car. Only, I never left. Just as I was about to walk through the door, the entire wall leaped five feet away from me. I blinked and did a double take. Maybe I was seeing it wrong. I started making my way toward the door again, only to have the same thing happen. I could see my car parked out front. I could see the road and the city. I just couldn't find my way out for some reason. I tried the same thing again and again and again, each time only to have the door jump away from me as it did the first. I placed the basket down in frustration and took a running start this time. I hurled myself at the door, hoping maybe I'd make the five-foot gap. Only this time it moved ten feet to compensate for the extra force I threw myself with. I tumbled onto the floor, with the door still five feet away. I sat up and rubbed my shoulder before letting out a sigh of frustration. The stupid place was doing this just to screw with me. I decided to pack up the basket, and I walked to the back of the building to sit on a bench. Maybe if I waited a little while, the door would decide to cooperate? It didn't. An hour later, I tried again, with the same result. I called my girlfriend. Hello? She picked up. Hey babe, do you know where the laundromat is on 10th? Silence. Uh, there is no laundromat on 10th Street. You're kidding. No, I'm not. I'm serious. Nothing is coming up. Okay, uh, I'll see you later. I love you. I hung up the phone and tried to make sense of what she had said. There is no laundromat on 10th Street. Then, where was I? I picked up my basket and walked further into the back of the building, thinking maybe I could find a back exit or... An emergency exit, considering the front door won't budge. Only, I never reached the back of the building. It just kept going. The walls, lined with washers and dryers, went on and on for what seemed like miles. I walked for an hour and didn't reach the back. Maybe I could find another way out. I tried pulling out the ceiling tiles and crawling through the ceiling, hoping to maybe end up next door. I still ended up in the goddamn laundromat. I'm still here, and I don't know how much longer I'm going to last. I figured out that I can drink water from the machines, but I have no food going. As I... I feel like I'm not alone in here. All I'm asking is for a way out of here. I don't know what's going on.
Speaking of laundry, those coin-op machines are not cheap. And some of them are so old and shitty that sometimes it takes me two washes to get the blood. I mean, you know what? Let's just move on. Our next story of the evening is by Reddit user TacoCat0927. And actually, this is part one of two, so let me know if you want to hear the sequel after you hear this one. This one is called, It's Nice to Have a Hobby. What hobbies do you enjoy in your spare time? This is a question often displayed on work applications or a common inquiry during the awkward stages of first dates. However, have you ever really thought about the exact specifications which make up a hobby? If you think about it, any collection, any form of artistic expression, any repetitive activity performed for enjoyment could be considered a hobby, no matter how dark the subject matter, no matter how morbid the action, no matter how grotesque the collection. What I do know is that a hobby can often cause a person to be unfairly typecast in a certain way. Collect vintage wines? What a snob! Love to knit and sew? You must be an old lady. In a sense, a hobby can define and change us in ways we may or may not appreciate and my hobby was no exception. My husband Patrick told me my collection was weird. My obsession with these objects were borderline psychotic. But to me, they were precious items worthy of admiration. You can't display these in the living room, Laura. People are going to talk. He sputtered the first day I brought home my very first find from the Goodwill down the street. I have to look at your stupid shelf of vintage golf balls every day. Don't you think it's only fair that I get to display my collection? I replied defensively. I was excited about my little collection and was looking forward to the hunt to find more. I had to admit though, my husband was right. Collecting old golf balls was much more socially acceptable than collecting Victorian death photography. I was meticulous about choosing the perfect frame for each portrait giving great thought and detail to what I thought the individual in the photograph would have preferred given a choice. For the small children, I chose bright colors and whimsical patterns. For the women, floral outlines and gilded metals. For the men, simplistic designs and natural woods. I gave names to those who did not have them already written on the photographs. I attributed personality traits and backstories to each lovely soul and often found myself absentmindedly speaking to them as though they were alive and listening behind their glass frames. Hey there, little Susie. How are you doing today? Your hair certainly looks nice. Did you do something different with it this morning? I would cheerfully proclaim as I dutifully dusted her pretty pink and silver frame. At first, I respected Patrick's objections to exhibiting them in the living room, keeping the portraits artfully displayed on a bookshelf in our bedroom. However, I was quickly made to relocate them to the shelves in the basement when my husband claimed the portraits were interfering with his beauty sleep. Come on, you don't actually believe that they're haunted or anything silly like that, do you? I teased him. No, he replied, but I swear some of them have changed clothing and positions since you brought them home. That comment made me pause. 
I considered myself a fairly observant person, and I certainly viewed the photographs far more often than my husband, but it never occurred to me that they could possibly change in any way. <laughs> You're being ridiculous, I laughed. They're pictures, and of dead people at that. There's no way they're walking around or changing clothes. My husband's offhand comment did make me more aware of the stance and attire of those in my collection. I made a mental note of each lace dress or finely tailored suit and the position of every folded limb and distinct facial feature. At first, the changes were subtle. The placement of a finger would go from bent to flat. The part of an individual's hair would change from right to left. Small differences that if you were not paying close enough attention would easily go unnoticed. To say I was a bit freaked out at first would be an understatement, but as the changes continued, I just learned to accept them. Patrick and I weren't exactly being haunted, as the variations in the portraits never seemed to have any detrimental effect on our lives. As time progressed, the portraits became less and less of an oddity. In fact, my husband and I had devised a sort of paranormal contest to see who could spot the changes first. Mary Elizabeth decided she wanted the black heels today instead of the lace stockings. I called from the basement. Well, Sir Huckleberry thought he would prefer to sit down for a bit. Must have gotten tired from standing so long. Patrick shouted back. I cursed under my breath. I had missed that change from yesterday. Another point for my husband. We lovingly tended to the photographs, and in return, they provided us with harmless yet somewhat creepy entertainment. It went on without issues for a couple of years, until the day the new neighbor moved in next door. I woke up abruptly to a loud pounding on the front door. I groggily reached for my cell phone on the side of the bed to check the time. For fuck's sake, I grumbled to my husband. It's seven o'clock on a Saturday, who the hell is that? I hastily pulled on my robe as the pounding increased in volume shouted towards the front door. I'm coming! Jesus, just hold on! I yanked open the front door and was presented with a burly man in a sweat-stained white t-shirt and unkempt facial hair. His fist was raised, prepared to give the door another thorough blow. That your cat? He asked me, pointing a finger to the large brown and black Maine Coon roaming through the landscaping next to his house. Oh, um, yeah, that's Doug. He's harmless, and he always comes home when he's hungry. I replied, blinking rapidly as the sun burned into my sleep-deprived eyes. I don't give a shit if he's harmless, but if I find him using my landscaping for a litter box one more time, I can guarantee you he won't be coming home at all. He barked at me. Gee, what a lovely introduction to the new neighbor, I thought to myself. Whatever happened to muffin baskets and polite small talk? Listen, he likes to roam, and I'll do my best to keep him out of your yard, but honestly, it's basically free fertilizer, right? I joked, trying to ease the tension. Either you take care of it, or I will. He spat at me, then turned to stomp back towards his house. So much for first impressions, I mumbled to myself as I closed the door and headed to the kitchen to make coffee. 
Five days later, I noticed Doug had not come inside for his dinner the night before. Not exactly an uncommon occurrence, but I bugged my husband nonetheless. Hey, hun, have you seen Doug anywhere? Not since Wednesday night, he replied. I decided not to dwell and convinced myself he would come back tonight when he got hungry enough. Two more days passed, and still no sign of my feline companion, and I started to panic. I decided to ask around the neighborhood to see if anyone had seen him, starting with my next-door neighbor. I knocked on his door, and instead of answering, he shouted at me through the closed door. What do you want? It's your neighbor, Laura. I was wondering if you've seen Doug. We haven't seen him since Wednesday, I yelled back. Yeah, I saw him on Wednesday too, shitting in my landscaping. Be a shame if something bad happened to him. He replied with more than a hint of sarcasm in his voice. What the fuck did you do to my cat, asshole? I screamed as I started furiously pounding on his door. Who, me? I would never dream of hurting your precious little pussy. He said slyly. Now get off my property. I returned home in tears, absolutely certain that monster had done something devious with my cat. I just fucking know he killed Doug. I wailed to Patrick. Yeah, well, without proof and without a body, we really can't do anything, honey. My husband reluctantly replied. You could beat the shit out of the bastard. I mumbled through my sobs. Patrick gave an exaggerated sigh. You know nothing would give me more pleasure, but that would result in nothing but an assault charge against me. So I slumped my shoulders in defeat and retreated to the bedroom to grab a photograph of my cat off the nightstand. My husband gave me a weird glance as I carried the frame down to the basement, but gave no verbal objection. I set the picture next to my morbid portrait collection and told them, Take good care of him, guys. I guess he's better suited down here with you. He likes scratches under the chin and eating leftover french fries. With that said, As I started to turn around and walk away, I swear a couple of the portraits had menacing grins on their faces and winked at me. A few weeks later, our dinner was interrupted by the chime of the doorbell. Patrick got up to answer, and I could barely make out the conversation from the dining room. But as soon as I heard the words police and investigation, I got up to see who was at the door. You must be Mrs. Sarley, the officer said. I was just talking to your husband about the disappearance of your neighbor, uh, Mr. Gunderson. Disappearance, I repeated. I had no idea he was missing. Yes, ma'am, his family hasn't seen or heard from him in over seven days. The officer went on to explain that, although there was no sign of foul play, They were still doing their due diligence and questioning neighbors and friends. Patrick and I relayed that we had little to no interactions with our neighbor since he moved in, 
leaving out the incident with Doug, and he thanked us for our time and walked back to his squad car. How odd, I whispered to myself as I walked back towards the dining room. Instead of sitting back down to eat, I made a detour to visit my deceased framed friends in the basement. I glanced over each one lovingly, until I stopped abruptly at the portrait of a man I had named Montgomery Radcliffe. The man's hair was no longer finely coiffed. His usually fine attire was untucked, ripped, and stained with black smudges, and at his feet pooled a dark liquid. Due to the black and white coloration of the portraits, I couldn't pinpoint exactly what substance was causing the staining, or the puddle. I was content to just chalk it up to another quirky change in my mischievous collection of friends. When my eyes noticed another distinct difference. There was an extra person in the portrait with Mr. Radcliffe. A person I hadn't noticed before. A person who looked like they had just been beaten within an inch of their life. A person who looked very similar to my neighbor, Mr. Gunderson. Record an ad. Shut up. Hey. Man, that last one was a doozy, huh? What? Mm. I don't... I don't hear any screams. I don't know what you're talking about. I don't... Hold... Just hold on. Hold on one second. Wow, that was weird, huh? The neighbors must be having a party. Anyway, um... Okay, you guys, our last story of the night is actually by me. And I don't think I've had my own work on the show in over a year, or maybe a little less than a year. I'm not really sure. It's been a long, long time. I think the last one was, like, Proctor's Children's Home, I believe. Anyway... Over the years, um, or (laughs) the years, over the months, I've read some of the most incredible horror that I have ever seen in my life. So many of my stories that I have on the show should be turned into movies, and thus I am pretty nervous about putting my own work back on the show. Um, So this is something I've been working on for a little bit. It is called... (laughs) I really hope you like... Oh my god, you guys, I'm nervous. I'm so nervous. Um, This is called nuclear flight. Most of the cabin was asleep at the tail end of a long-haul flight from Singapore to Los Angeles. The lights were still lowered as they had a couple hours left until they reached their destination. The gentle sound of businessmen wired on bad coffee, tapping away at the keyboards of their laptops was joined by the occasional snoring of a sunburned tourist. A low murmur came from a mother at the back of the plane, reading a story to her child. Altogether, it had been an 
uneventful flight. No panic attacks, no vomit. Even the smell of 236 passengers wasn't so bad. Inside the cockpit, the pilot and the co-pilot operated the plane quietly. You got this, Kath? I'm gonna hit the head, said Dan, the co-pilot, as he takes off his headset. Don't fall in, (laughs) joked the head pilot, Kathy. As Dan entered the small restroom, a tired-looking flight attendant walked into the cockpit. Hey, how you holding up? He says to Kathy, a tinge of sympathy in his voice. Oh, Gerard, I'm good, hon, Kathy sighs. By the time we get back, Ted will have moved all his shit out. I hope the mistress appreciates his international beer can collection. Gerard places a hand on her shoulder. Don't worry, honey. You can do much better than his tacky ass. Bad tan Betty can have him. Kathy laughed. Tears formed in her eyes despite herself, and she quickly blinked them away. <laughs> Easy for you to say. How's it feel to know you'll legally be off the market in a few days? <laughs> it's Gerard's turn to sigh. <laughs> I feel like if my florist hasn't come through with those orchids, then I'm going to set her whole shop on fire. seen you nervous before. The flowers are going to be beautiful. Just remember to enjoy yourself. My wedding went by so fast it was all a blur. Not that it matters now. There was an uncomfortable silence. Way to make it weird, Kathy, she thought to herself. Gerard looked around, feeling incredibly awkward. Finally, he said, I better go check on Vicky. She gets frantic when I leave her alone too long. He gave her one last pat on the shoulder and re-entered the cockpit. Dan still hadn't come out of the bathroom. Either doing coke or backed up from all the coke he's been doing. Gerard narrowed his eyes at the bathroom door. He thought about the ways he could get the company to randomly drug test him. Dan was a homophobic and sexist piece of shit. Kathy was too distracted by her messy divorce to notice any of it. Although, she had also probably just grown used to the sexist jabs from male co-workers over the years, but she never seemed to notice the extra energy Dan had every time he exited the bathroom, or how handsy he got with the female flight attendants. Vicky really did get frantic if left alone for longer than a few minutes. She was relatively new. She looked like she'd be more at home as a showgirl in Vegas. Her big blue eyes always looked confused. Her overprocessed blonde hair was always done up in a white trashy type updo, and she somehow got away with wearing this sparkly hot pink lip gloss that was definitely against uniform regulations. He walked into business class this year trying to calm down a red-faced man in a suit. Do you know how much fucking money I paid for this goddamn seat? It's supposed to include Wi-Fi. Not that you would know anything about this, but I have very important paperwork to send before 6 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. His raised voice was starting to cause the sleeping passengers to stir. I'm... I'm sorry, sir. We just... we just aren't getting a signal at all. She looked as if she was about to cry, 
Gerard shook his head and interjected. Hello there. What seems to be the problem? Gerard smiled a well-practiced professional smile and looked down at the red-faced man. I was just telling the stewardess that my wife I quit working. I've been telling her for half an hour now and she still hasn't bothered to fix it. Well, sir, this flight attendant said she checked and we aren't getting a signal. That happens sometimes due to bad weather or... A pudgy pink hand was put up in front of Gerard's face. I don't want to hear excuses. I want my money back. I was guaranteed Wi-Fi and I need to get these papers out. Gerard put his hand up now. Before 6 a.m. Eastern Standard Time, I know, sir, I think the entire plane knows... When you clicked that little I agree box when ordering your ticket, you agreed to the fact that the Wi-Fi is not actually guaranteed and due to maintenance or weather could be offline at any time during the flight. Now, if you could kindly keep your voice down, your fellow passengers are trying to sleep. Just as the businessman was about to blow a gasket, the plane hit a huge wave of turbulence, enough to knock Vicky over. Gerard grabbed her just as she was about to hit her head on the armrest of the nearest seat. The fastened seatbelt sign came on immediately. Overhead, Kathy made an announcement. Hey folks, it looks like we're heading into a bad storm. No need to worry, just return to your seats and we should be out of it quickly. Thank you. The plane shook again. Even harder this time. I know this is an odd request, folks, but the flight attendants will be coming around to make sure all window shades are pulled down, as per Regulation 28C. If you could help them out and pull your shades down, then just relax and get some shut-eye. We will be reaching our destination soon. Gerard furrowed his brow. Vicky whispered, What is Storm Regulation 28C? That wasn't on the written test. Make sure all the shades get closed and then go put on your safety harness. It just means the storm is going to get pretty bad and they don't want people to be startled by the sight of lightning hitting the plane. Vicky nodded silently and practically ran. He made a note to remind her that it was incredibly unprofessional to appear panicked in front of the passengers as he walked towards the cockpit. Dan was absent again, either still in the bathroom or having already returned to it. Kathy was staring straight ahead sitting eerily still. Kath, I just came to see what was... He touched her shoulder as always, but was stopped mid-sentence when Kathy spun to look at him. Her frizzy red hair was plastered to her freckled cheeks with sweat. Drod! You scared me. Her eyes not quite focusing on his face. Kathy, what the fuck is going on? You and I know damn well that there is no such thing as Storm Regulation 28C. Why are you waking all these people up to close their shades? She chewed her lip in an attempt to stop it from quivering. Tears welled up in her eyes. She began to shake. Finally, she breathed out. What's over? Kathy, what's over? Whatever it is, we can fix it. Let's just get Dan back in here and maybe you can lay down for a minute. 
Gerard's mind had immediately gone to the idea of Kathy's bitter divorce. Please do not crash this whole plane of people just because your marriage is over. that already, Catherine. What the fuck is over? Why isn't Dan coming back? Gerard was getting angry now. He always got angry when he was scared. We received a major alert. DC and New York are gone. Gone? Destroyed by nuclear bombs. Like in some movie. The alert didn't stop there. There were more incoming reports. Reports that the entire country is about to be hit. That can't be true. Look, Gerard! Kathy pointed out the front window. Gerard hadn't been paying attention to anything but Kathy and had assumed the flashes of light that were coming in were lightning from the storm. He saw explosions happening everywhere across the ground. From so far up, they looked like fireflies. Then pale puffs of smoke drifted up towards the sky. Miracle, we're even still in the air. That we haven't been hit. What about Los Angeles? Can we still land? Can we can we land anywhere? We aren't over the prairies anymore. Even if we were, look at that. They're not just targeting cities. It's everywhere. But what did they say? What did Control say? the initial alerts, everything went dead. I can't get anyone on the ground or in the air. No one. Not a soul. We may be the only ones left. It was Gerard's turn to start sweating. He felt sick. He thought of his fiance, Paul, and his mother, all his siblings, aunts, uncles, cousins. Were they gone? They couldn't just be gone. The bright flashes of light were almost steady now. There were so many. We don't have enough fuel to make it to Hawaii. Even if we did, I don't want to risk flying over the US any longer than we have to. I think we could turn towards Canada and just go as far as we can before we need to land. They heard a loud bang, and something heavy hit the door of the cockpit bathroom. Gerard and Kathy locked eyes, blood draining out of both their faces. Dan. Kathy barely got out. What's that? Gerard could barely breathe. A gunshot. Kathy nodded her head slowly, 
Unable to control the quivering of her lip now, she started to sob. After a moment, Drad took a deep breath and composed himself. Turn to Canada. If that's our only hope, then do it. Maybe we can pick up some mounty signal or something. I'm gonna go I'm gonna go check on the passengers. Gerard entered first class in a daze and was immediately met by a mob. They were all speaking at once, asking if they had heard a gunshot, why they had to pull down their shades. These were seasoned flyers, and they had never heard of a regulation requiring shutting the blinds. It became a blur of angry and frightened voices, like bees buzzing around a hive. He looked to his left to see an old woman pulling up her shade. In the deep blackness of the window, he suddenly saw a pinprick of light. And then, the entire plane shook. The anxiety made his stomach lurch. His mother once said, everyone holds their nerves in different places. Some people got headaches, some people grind their teeth, some bite their fingernails. He got stomach aches. She said that as she wiped the dried vomit off his little face and helped him out of his soiled shirt after he saw a scary movie at a sleepover when he was eight. She had smiled warmly at him and told him it was okay, that everyone got scared every once in a while, and that she would always be there to help make him brave again. As the memory passed, he looked up to see the faces of the passengers, shocked, some disgusted, and some holding their hands over their mouths and noses. He looked down to see he had thrown up all down the front of his uniform. He suddenly made a beeline to the back of the plane to find Vicky. He had to tell her what was happening. She deserved to know. They all deserved to know, but the thought of an entire plane of panicked people was too much to risk. Vicky was also surrounded by a mob of passengers. She was crying and telling them that it was just the weather. It's not just the fucking weather! Have you looked outside? Tell us what the fuck is going on! A man wearing a Hawaiian shirt screamed. She caught sight of Gerard. Gerard, Gerard, please, please, please tell these people what's going on. I keep telling them that it's just the weather, but they keep yelling at me about the lights outside. I told them that it's just lightning. We aren't fucking stupid. I know what lightning looks like. This isn't lightning. The same man exclaimed. The rest of the passengers nodded along. Apparently, they had taken an unspoken vote, and Hawaiian Shirt was elected as their leader. Gerard looked the man in the face. He wasn't being rude. He was scared, and rightfully so. The woman who had been reading to her small child now held him in her lap. She quietly sang to him while looking up at Gerard with frightened, unquestioning eyes. 
jaw then stripped off the vomit-soaked button-up and stood there in his undershirt. Something felt very ceremonial about undoing each button, while a group of strangers stood silently watching him. He draped the shirt, along with his name tag, across one of the seats. He was now one of them. Not some corporate drone just trying to get through the day and keep his job by pacifying grown adults with lies about the weather. There is no storm, he began. You're goddamn fucking right there's no fucking storm. The leader started back in. Man, I'm trying to tell you what's going on. Please, just shut your ass up for one second. There was a collective gasp among passengers. The leader began to stutter out a retort, but then fell silent and nodded for Gerard to continue. There is no storm. The U.S. is being attacked with nuclear weapons. Before they could all shout over him, he raised his voice. We don't know by who, and we don't know why. I can think of a few reasons. I'm sure you all can too, but I don't have any answers. All I know is that we have lost communication with anyone on the ground or in the sky. Our pilot has turned our flight path toward Canada. So, is it safe in Canada? A young woman from the back asked. Frightened eyes turned hopeful for a whisper of a moment. I don't know. We don't know. We just know that Los Angeles is probably either too dangerous to attempt to land in, or if it's even still there. There were a few screams. Some people immediately began sobbing. Some pulled out cell phones, attempting to call loved ones who no longer existed. Some of them ran to first class. Vicky kept crying. Gerard just stood there, watching as one man attempted to open the emergency door. Before he could even think to react, other passengers had restrained the man and beaten him till he was unconscious. Some passengers simply returned to their seats and stared, or held on to one another. A group of people had formed a prayer circle. They all seemed to be of different faiths. Hey, maybe if they all prayed to different gods, one of them would answer and guide them out of this nightmare. He felt a tug on his undershirt and looked down. The woman with the young child looked up at him. Excuse me, I know this doesn't seem like the time, but does your cart have any applesauce? It's for my little boy. It wasn't the time, but it was a simple request that he could definitely make happen. So, Gerard smiled and said, Yes, ma'am. We do have applesauce. Let me go grab you one. 
When he brought it back, he saw she had produced an amber-colored prescription bottle. A few pills were scattered on the tray table, and she was crushing them up with her cell phone. She looked up to see him staring. He handed her the container. She tore off the foil lid and used her hand to wipe some of the white powder into the snack. I want him to either wake up in Canada, or in the very least, to not have to see what happens if we don't make it, she explained. He's autistic, and all this craziness is just making him so anxious. Gerard then noticed the little boy had his hands over his ears and his eyes tightly closed shut. When he gets anxious, his stomach starts to hurt. So I don't know if he'll even eat it. She stirred in the powder and began to spoon feed it to her son, but he spat it out. I know it's a little bitter pumpkin. Please eat it, though. She looked up at Gerard, who was still staring. I'm not a monster. It's just the best thing I can do for him right now. Gerard shook his head. Let me get you some sugar packets. It should help cut the bitterness some more, and little man will get some great shut-eye. Thank you. She was trying so hard not to cry. He brought back a whole fistful of sugar packets and left her with a smile. Those small moments had actually given him some hope. Hope for humanity. Hope they were going to make it out. Gerard, please come to the cockpit. Kathy's voice rang out over the speakers. Anyone who was still screaming or sobbing stopped. The prayer circle halted their prayers and looked up. As he walked down the aisle, instead of mobs, people parted for him. They were too anxious to know what information the pilot was about to relay to him, to hound him with questions they now knew he didn't have the answers to. He paused a moment as he passed the cockpit bathroom that now served as Dan's coffin. He noticed now that blood had been seeping from under the door. His shoes squelched in the sticky carpet. His stomach did another flip-flop, but the contents of it stayed inside this time. He looked to the back of Kathy's head. Her eyes were plastered to the giant windshield in front of her. Hi, Kath. What a stupid thing to say, he thought. But it was easier than, hey, we gonna die or no? I won't stop. I'm going to keep going, she said. That's good. He put a comforting hand on her shoulder. But what, it, what does that mean exactly? No matter what happens, we will just keep going. It's all we can do. Okay, but are we headed to Canada now? Yes. So, the lights. I can see lights out there. 
they? Before she could answer, he looked out into the distance. There they were, the pinpricks of light. As they appeared, turbulence rocked the plane. He heard screams from behind him. Can't we just land somewhere, anywhere, a field, a freeway, something? We are all probably already suffering from radiation poisoning, even being this high above. Those cities below will be suffering from nuclear fallout, even if they're miles away from a blast. I've been watching the winds carry the smoke across the entire countryside. We have to find somewhere far enough away from one of these things, which will probably be somewhere in the Canadian wilderness. It has... it'll be its own set of issues, but... it's hope. What if we don't find anywhere like that? Gerard asked reluctantly. Then, I'll make sure we hit hard and fast. Her eyes never once moved from the sky. Instead of returning to the passengers, Gerard sat in Dan's co-pilot chair and strapped himself in. He looked at Kathy and she looked at him. Then, let's keep going. <laughs>